Tenakoto, Tenakoto, Tenakoto Kotawa. Welcome to this very special, special session in the um, Word Christchurch Shifting Points of View season. How the Dead Speak is the name of Bell's new book, and that's what the session is something about that, but not, we're going to go different ways, aren't we, Bell? Probably. Let's see how it goes. <laughs> Because with her, with Belle's crime novels, you can't just talk about the books very much because you give away too much. And I can't stand people who talk to a writer and I'm sitting in the audience and they tell me the whole plot and I'm just going to buy it and read it. So we'll watch that. There are people to thank, Word Christchurch's fundraisers and partners, Creative New Zealand, Christchurch City Council, the Rata Foundation, Heartland Bank, Terunanga Onai Tahu, and the New Zealand Listener. And if you've seen this week's Listener, you would have seen the wonderful article that Craig Sisterson has done. It's worth buying the Listener just for your article, Bill. So, um, I'm Ruth Todd, and it's 20 years since I first met Belle and talked with her in our city, I think it was our city, you wouldn't remember, <laughs> and I don't remember, but it was the Listener Women's Book Festival, and yep. if there's anyone approaching my age, and probably not many, um, there, you would remember the Listener Women's Book Festivals, which we had in the 90s, and Val came out to that, and uh, what, a, what a wonderful night we had. Yeah. So I wonderful to have you I had a great back. time because I didn't just get to come here, I, I went all round New Zealand, North and South Island, and it was the perfect introduction and made me burn with a desire to come back. So here I am. I mean, I've been since then, but yes. this, this time I've come for a proper stay. That's right, and we'll talk about that a little bit. We're all wanting to shift to Dunedin for these eight <laughs> weeks of you. <clears throat> so um, UBS are the bookstore out in the foyer, and uh, Val will be signing copies if you want to buy them. Yeah, there's several books there, and if they haven't got copies, I saw a few were miss missing that I thought you might like to buy. If you haven't read some of the earlier ones, then you can certainly order them from UBS. Well, in this book, How the Dead Speak, on the first page, this is what it says. Val McDermott is a number one bestseller whose novels have been translated into more than 30 languages and sold over 15 million copies. That's quite a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it's out of date as well, it's 16 now. <laughs> so, they, so they tell me. Yeah. I'm sure it's going up daily. <laughs> well, hopefully. <laughs> she has won many awards internationally, of course, including the CWA Gold Dagger for Best Crime Novel of the Year, the LA Times Book of the Year Award, inducted into the ITV3 Crime Thriller Awards Hall of Fame in 2009, the recipient of the CWA Cartier Diamond Dagger in 2011, and the Lambda Literary Foundation Pioneer Award in 2011. In 2016, Val received the Outstanding Contribution to Crime Fiction Award at the Theakstone Old Peculiar Crime Writing Festival, which I believe you started, yeah. and was elected a Fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. 2017, she received the Deba Literary Prize for Crime, so obviously she writes full-time. <laughs> so how's that for a CV? So Val, after the, reading all those awards, you didn't have so many of them in 1999. No. <laughs> <laughs> but you were very interested in drama and play, and I believe there's a play coming up. Yeah, I did a one-act play last year for a venue in Glasgow that does uh, lunchtime plays. They have a, a season called A Play, A Pie and A Pint, which does exactly <laughs> what it says on the tin. Um, and as a result of that, the director of the Lyceum Theatre in Edinburgh commissioned a play from me. So that will probably be uh, at the end of next, on stage at the end of next year or the beginning of 2021. And I'm working on the second draft of that, 
while I'm in Dunedin. So. Well, that's exciting. Yeah, it's very mm. exciting. So. And she's also a singer. I didn't know about your music. Mm. And she plays with a six-piece band. I mean, she sings with a six-piece band, and I'd love to hear it, but you might need to bring them back to Dunedin when you come next year. Well, I think <laughs> they'd be up for it. Uh, they'd certainly be uh, up for a, an Antipodean tour. Um, we, we, we're called the fun-loving crime writers. Uh, <laughs> and we sing songs about crime and murder. Uh, and we started off in quite a small way, just doing sort of events at book festivals. But this year, we, we played Glastonbury. <laughs> really? <laughs> it's crazy, you know. It's a, it's a, it's a bunch of, of, of middle-aged wannabes, you know, <laughs> having, having a midlife crisis, really. But uh, it's, it's starting to sort of snowball, and we're, we're now um, having bookings for, for next year at proper proper rock venues, <laughs> with a support act, for heaven's sake, you know, like we, were, like we were proper, like a proper band, so we have a lot of fun doing it, uh, it's, it's, you know, you know, the most fun you can have without the exchange of bodily fluids, I think. <laughs> so you've come a long, long way since Aye, that, well, you were the first Scottish state school student to go to Oxford University. Well, to St Hilda's College in Oxford. St Hilda's College yeah, at Oxford, yeah. yes. Yeah. Must have been quite a shock. I think it was quite a shock for them, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was—it was certainly—it was, um, was certainly a culture shock for me. Um, you know, the first thing, the first problem that I had was that I had to learn to speak English. As what, what you hear now is, is what my partner calls my BBC Radio 4 Scottish accent. But when I—I I grew up in, in part of Scotland called Fife. Um, and in Fife, we talk awfully fast, Ken, and we talk about a lot of dialect. Ken, we don't know our words together. Nobody knows what we're saying, Ken. <laughs> So I went off to Oxford and nobody predictably understood what I was saying. Uh, and my very first tutorial I, I went into and started reading my essay and uh, my tutor stopped me after a few sentences and said, I'm most terribly sorry, Miss McDermott, but I haven't understood a word you've said. <laughs> M might we begin again and perhaps a little more slow this time? <laughs> so I, had to, I realized I had, to, I had to overcome this, this handicap of communication. Um, and, but everything was different. I mean, even the vegetables were different, you know. Growing up in Fife in the 1960s, we only had three vegetables, you know. And Oxford kept putting there were things on the table, and I looked at them. I didn't know if this was a table decoration or food, you know. I mean, <laughs> I mean watercress, why would you think you were going to eat that? <laughs> so from there, you became a journalist and yeah. a dramatist. And it, wasn't a little, it was a little while. You'd wanted to write, didn't you? You'd read lots of crime and you wanted to write, not particularly crime at that time, mm. but it did come. When did it come that it was got to be a crime novel you were going to have a go at? Well, it kind of came because I failed at other things. Um, <laughs> you know, when I left Oxford, um, you, know, I, you know, it's like when you're 20, you know the secrets of the universe and no one can tell you anything. And I was going to write the great English novel uh, and I attempted to, to do this and it was like full of, full of tortured human relationships and all the big emotions, you know, love and jealousy and, and betrayal and all these things. Um, and I suppose the one thing that I could say about this, this book in its favour was that I actually finished it. Um, and I started sending it round literary agents and publishers. Uh, and, you know, often you hear people say, you know, sent the book off and it was, it was weeks before they got back to me and then there was a lovely letter saying, you know, we liked your book very much, it's not quite what we're looking for, but please stay in touch and let us see whatever you write in future. Those were not the kind of letters I got. <laughs> I generally got it back by return of post. <laughs> and I think towards the end, I was actually getting letters from people I hadn't sent it to. You know. <laughs> We've heard about this book, please don't send it to us. <laughs> and I wasn't, but I was determined, I was so determined that I, I was, was going to write, I wanted to be a writer. Uh, and I, I, I got sidetracked into, accidentally into writing plays, and that didn't really work out for me because I didn't understand what I'd done right to have that first success. And so I couldn't replicate it, and, and I just kept trying. And I have a whole filing cabinet drawer full of really bad plays. <laughs> um, and, and then my, the agent that I had got with my first play sacked me because I wasn't making him any money. And I suppose what I thought then was, I have to look at a form where I do understand the shape of it, where I understand how the form works. And I'd always read a lot of crime fiction from my earliest days. Mm. Um, I used to stay a lot with my grandparents when I was a kid. 
Uh, and I always ran out of library books that I'd brought with me. And the only book they had in the house apart from the Bible was Agatha Christie's Murder at the Vicarage for reasons no one has ever been able to explain to me because neither of them ever knowingly read a book. Uh, and, uh, but I really liked this. I loved the Agatha Christie. I loved the complexity of it. And, and I, I returned to it again and again. And of course, I was very excited when I realized that Agatha Christie had written more than one book. Uh, and so I made it my, my goal to, to get my hands on more of her books, uh, which was a problem for me because uh, the books were in the adult library. And back in the 1960s in Scotland, you know, the adult library was, was separated from the children's library by a wall. You know, probably easier to get over the Berlin Wall, frankly, at that point than, than the wall into the adult library. And but I was determined, and you know, I've always had a, a tendency to, to find a way to get what I want. And uh, and so I did a bad thing. Uh, I stole my mum's library tickets, <laughs> and I went off to the library, and I, I did my most piteous face, and said to the librarians, "I have to get a book for my mum. She's not well." <laughs> God bless those librarians. That that worked for five years. <laughs> and you know, your past has a way of catching up with you. Uh, if you've read any of my standalones, you'll know that if there is a common theme at all, it is that the past catches up with you, uh, and you can never outrun your sins. And indeed, this proved to be the case. And a few years ago, I, I was doing an event back in Kirkcaldy Library. And my mum still lived across the road from the library, and I said to her, like, you know, come along for the evening, see what I do for a living, you know. And uh, we walked into the library, and th there was a couple of the women who had been librarians when I was a child, you know. And I, I thought they were ancient, but must have been probably about 23, you know. Um, but anyway, I, I, I introduced my mum, and one of them looked quite startled, said, oh, Mrs. McDermott, I thought you must be dead. <laughs> and my mum said, dead? Why would I be dead? And the librarian said, well, with you being a bedridden invalid all those years, <laughs> you know that look that only your mother can give you. So, yeah, I, I, was, I was caught out on, on that one, but uh, Christie was my gateway drug into crime fiction. So, over the years, I had carried on reading a wide range of crime fiction because Kirkcaldy Adult Library had a lot of crime books. Um, you know, the classics like Christie and Sayers and Marsh, uh, but also the Americans like Chandler and Hammett, and, and later on, more contemporary writers. I read Josephine Tay, uh, Patricia Highsmith, mm -hmm. and I just loved the crime novel. And so, it seemed to me that, that if I was going to be a writer, since I'd failed at other things, I should try to write a crime novel. And again, I was sort of stuck, though, because back in the 1980s uh, in the UK, crime fiction fell broadly into two categories. It was either, either police procedurals or village mysteries. And I didn't think I knew enough about the police to write a police procedural, even though I'd encountered police officers when I was a journalist. And, but the ones I'd met didn't fill me with a burning desire to spend more time in their company. <laughs> um, and I, I, I thought you weren't, you know, I thought you had to know about the police to write about mm. them. But years later, I, I, I said this to Colin Dexter, um, and he burst out laughing and said, you know, my dear, I had written five Inspector Morse novels before I had ever set foot in a police station. <laughs> you just make it up. <laughs> See, I thought you weren't allowed to do that with the police. I thought if you just made it up, they'd come round your house and, you know, shout at you, or, or worse, you know. Um, and so the other thing was the village mystery, and, and I, I grew up in mining villages in Fife. It was nothing like St Mary Mead, uh, which, frankly, was like science fiction to me, you know. Growing up in Fife, we, we did not have retired colonels of the Indian Army. And so I, I, I didn't know how to write a crime novel that, that fit with my own experience of the world. Uh, and then uh, there was one of those sort of catalyst moments, you know, when the light bulb goes on in your head. A, a friend of mine who had moved to America sent me a copy of Sarah Paretsky's first novel, Indemnity Only. Wonderful and book. I love wonderful, that book. Wonderful, wonderful mm. book. Uh, and, and that was the sort of first adventure of V.I. Warshawski. Uh, and it was, it was like a, a moment of, of, of epiphany. You know, here was a, a female character who had agency you know, who had a brain and a sense of humour, and she didn't rely on the guys to come and sort out the problems when things got too difficult. And the other thing about it that really struck me was that the crimes in the book were organic. 
They happened because of the kind of lives people led in Chicago, the kind of jobs they did, the kind of political system in the city. That story, in a way, couldn't have happened anywhere but no. Chicago. It wasn't just some random murder bolted onto no. some random English mm. village. Uh, it, had, it had that sort of sense of being really grounded, and I thought, that's the kind of book I want to write. And that was what got me started. That's what got me... Uh, off the, off, off the starting blocks, really. So we had Lindsay Gordon. We had Lindsay Gordon, yeah. Report for murder, first British crime writer with a lesbian sleuth, mm -hmm. no doubt. And a winner. I mean, the first book was a winner. Well, not really. The first book was sort of published to a resounding silence to begin <laughs> with, you know. Uh, I mean, it was published in 1987. It's never been out of print, but um, when it was first published, it didn't get a single review because back then, um, newspapers, magazines didn't, didn't review paperbacks and it was published by the Women's Press who published yes. mm. paperback originals mm. only. So when the, when the book was published, uh, nothing happened really. It, it, was, it, was, it started to, to gain some traction because mostly from booksellers who back in the days when we had lots of independent booksellers, uh, they would read it and recommend it to their customers. And it, it really was a word-of-mouth thing that mm. started, uh, started the books selling. Um, but as I say, over, over the years, um, they've, they've garnered a bigger and bigger audience, those early books. And I suppose uh, the thing that always strikes me, you know, being published by a small indie publisher, the, the advance was tiny. Um, but I get great satisfaction that every single year now, I earn more money from Report for Murder than I got for that initial advance. So <laughs> it still sells steadily. That's amazing, isn't it? It is, you know, it's, it's quite good. It's quite nice to have a job where you still get paid for work you did 35 years ago, you know. <laughs> so your series with Kate Brannigan and uh, the Karen Perry novels, that all came about and they were becoming well-known, especially in the UK, I imagine, not so well-known here at that time. Not as, well, I didn't know them about them. I, I didn't, it was quite a while. It wasn't really till 1995 when Number Nine Novel was the new series, the breakout book, The Mermaid's Singing. And who were the characters but Tony Hill and Carol Jordan? That was huge acclaim, wasn't it? Well, yeah, it just I mean, built uh, and built and built. The, the Mermaid Singing won the, the Gold Dagger for best, mm. first, best crime novel of the year. Um, and that was uh, quite a big breakthrough for me because, um, not just because of the, the publicity it got uh, in, in the UK, but there's a lot, of, a lot of foreign publishers don't get excited about authors until they win prizes. Um, yes, and, yes. And, and so that, the, the success of The Mermaid Singing in, in that respect meant that my, my books were translated into a lot more languages at that mm. point, which was mm. you know, quite helpful uh, in terms of, of income and also in terms of recognition. So yeah, uh, Mermaid Singing was, was a real turning point for me. It was a turning point for me as a writer as well in a way because it was quite different from anything I had written before. Mm. Um, it was much darker than the, the Lindsay Gordons or the Kate mm. Brannigans. Mm. It, was, it was in terms of, of, of storytelling much more complex structure uh, and it was also uh, it's hard to, to look back now and, and look at memories singing in, in terms of its context but at that point nobody else was writing serial killer novels in the UK and nobody was writing psychological profilers in no, the UK no. so in that sense it was it was it was a breakthrough in, for for um, the books that were appearing in, in the UK at the time but for me it was a big breakthrough because it was so different from what I'd done before and I really struggled to find the voice to tell that story. I, I knew the story very clearly from the beginning, but finding a way to write it was, was challenging. And the success of that book, I suppose, gave me a kind of confidence that um, however difficult a project might seem to be at the beginning, I would find a way to, to bring it to life. And so that book has kind of become a touchstone for me that whenever I'm struggling with, with the structure of, 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 of getting an idea to the point where I can write it, or when I'm struggling with the book and I'm not, I'm not sure that, that the tone is, I've got the tone or the voice right, I think back to The Mermaid Singing, I think you managed to, you found a way to tell that story, you can do this. So it's, it's been sort of, I say, a sort of touchstone for, for me ever since. 
Well, you always take up challenges, don't you? I mean, every I like book is so different, and yeah. every book grows, and the characters grow, and I, li I like that. Um, and that was my introduction to you. I hadn't read the Lindsay Gordons or the others. We, I didn't know anything about you till you arrived here, that <laughs> with the, the mermaids, mermaids singing. And then, I guess, Wire in the Blood with the TV series did another. Good yeah, it, it raised my profile again, and mm. I mean, the, the great thing about that was that it brings new readers to the book. Mm. I mean, I think the only reason you would ever agree to adapt your work for film or television is about reaching a wider audience, mm. um, because inevitably, uh, the process of adaptation loses a lot along the way. It gains certain things too, but overall, I think it's a net loss. Mm. Um, it's one of the reasons why, if you, if you look at the films that have been made out of Stephen King's work, the best films have come from the short stories, yes. not from the novels. No. Because when you translate a novel into the, the sort of compact nature of, of a script, you lose so much of the complexity, so much of the texture, so much of the depth. But, as I say, on the other hand, the advantage of it is that if they do it well, you find a whole new audience. Uh, and Wire in the Blood, uh, although uh, it's been a while now since we, we finished making it, uh, is still... Uh, shown all over the world um, so on cable channels and all sorts. I mean, they've just uh, restarted showing it again on Amazon Prime, for example. So uh, I've, I've encountered it in, in all sorts of strange circumstances. I remember once I was, I was, in, a, I was in a hotel in Finland. I was doing an event in, in, in Finland. Uh, and I woke up in the middle of the night and I couldn't get back to sleep. And I switched the TV on and was, and, and was flicking through these cable channels. And there was Wire in the Blood with finished subtitles <laughs> in the middle of the night. So it, it's, um, it's certainly been something that's, uh, that's been seen by a lot of people. And I think also that, as I say, brings people to the books. I'm sure it does. But there's something about those two characters, isn't there? It's pretty special. Well, I think, uh, I think yeah, I mean... I mean, if I remember you saying <clears throat> in one of the books, um, quite recently, I think it was in, um, where is it? Insidious Interest, and um, Tobin uh, being more or less adopted, a 14-year-old, by his mother's died, her two friends have taken him as theirs, as to come into their family. And he says he goes to a football match with um, Tony Hill, and Tony's trying to get to know him because <clears throat> he's still feeling pretty sad about his mother. And uh, he says to Tony, what about you and Carol? Do you, do you, are you married? Do you live together? That sort of thing that he's saying. And Tony says, we're very good friends, but we're not lovers. Mm. And that's sort of how they've been, isn't it? For quite a while, mm. and I'm not going to say what's happening now, but um, it's it's just developed, 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 and and has that been part of the success? Well, I think so. I mean, it's a relationship that's that's fraught with all sorts of issues for both of them, um, but at the heart of it, uh, what has grown between them has has, has been, I suppose, fueled by a kind of chemistry between them. Mm. And um, I think, you know, we're, we've reached a point where it's quite clear that, that there's a really powerful love between them. Mm. But whether or not that can translate itself into any kind of conventional relationship is a matter, I think, of great uncertainty. It's hard to imagine the kind of relationship that that could be. Yes. Um, you know, but then imagination is my job. That's right. <laughs> and you'll uh, be imagining it's, it's, madly. <clears throat> I, 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 when I started writing them, when I wrote The Mermaid Singing, I didn't perceive it as the start of a series. I thought it was going really? to be a one-off. Um, but the further I got into the book, uh, the more I realized that the, there was a lot of potential to develop these two characters, both in terms of the jobs that they did um, and the kind of crimes that they could investigate, but also in terms of their personalities and their relationship to each other, but also to the other uh, nexus of characters that have developed through the course of the books. And so, I think one of the things that's really changed in, in the last 30 years or so with crime fiction is the notion that uh, when you experience all these terrible things, they don't just, it's not just water off a duck's back anymore. Uh, readers expect, and, and writers expect to, to stretch themselves 
with the idea that uh, events have an impact, things have consequences. You carry forward the burden of, of your past. It's very different from, from the Golden Age novels, you know, where it doesn't matter what order you read no, the Agatha Christie's. No. Miss Marple stays essentially the same, <laughs> except that her arthritis gets a bit worse, you know. And, but she never sits there and says, I wonder why it is that all my friends are dead. <laughs> Not just because they've got old. Um, and she but, hasn't. And she hasn't, but, but there's no, there's no self-consciousness no, there. No. There's no self-reflection no. there. Um, but I think readers now expect, and writers expect, to provide this sense of consequence that when you're writing about these things, you can't just have, they can't just have no impact. So over the, the years, over the course of 11 novels, I have um, had Tony and Carl experience some, some pretty intense things and deal with some very difficult situations. And inevitably, that has had a consequence over the years. That has, has created personal problems for both of them. And, and between both of them, um, there have been times when they're, they're, they were driven almost to, to complete fracture. And somehow, I've had to pull that back from the brink before. Uh, and in a way, How the Dead Speak is um, a novel that deals with consequences of the previous 10 novels uh, yes. and, and I suppose addresses some of the issues that uh, have arisen over the years and over, this, over the, the course of the novels. In How the Dead Speak, <coughs> excuse me, there's a strong knowledge and interest in forensics that mm. comes through, isn't it? We have these... Um, yeah, and this is the only thing I'm going to tell you about how the dead speak. Um, I think we know that fairly near the beginning that these skeletons of young girls had been found in the orphanage garden. The orphanage was closed five years ago. And then it becomes a fascinating novel for me, and I'm sure for other people, about the forensic side. And you have done a non-fiction book on forensic yeah. that I didn't know about till Craig yes. told me last yes, week. <laughs> yeah, yeah um, I, it, it sort of came about really. Um, because the Wellcome Trust is a, is a, a medical charity and they have a, a wonderful museum in London uh, on Euston Road. If you're ever in London with a few hours to spare, right opposite Euston Station is the Wellcome Trust Museum. And they always have the most extraordinary exhibitions on. Uh, it's free to go in, uh, they've got a really good cafe, and they've got a really good cloakroom where you can leave your stuff like a left luggage office for most of the day. But, um, they, but they do have these wide-ranging uh, interpretation of what health is. And they were, they were refurbishing one of their galleries and they wanted to reopen it with a forensic exhibition. Uh, and they came to me and said, we'd like you to write a book accompanying the exhibition, not a catalogue, but something that, that goes deeper into the areas that we're going to touch on in the exhibition. And I said, no, I'm too busy. Um, and the last time I did a non-fiction book was 20 years ago, and it was the hardest work I've ever done. Uh, and so they came back and said, we really want you to do this book. And they, they was, they was quite clear they were not going away. Um, and eventually I agreed to do it on the basis that I could uh, base each chapter on an interview with, with a practitioner. Because I've always believed in terms of research, the best way to find out about anything is to talk to somebody who does it for real. Um, because that way you get the answers to your questions, but you get the answers to the things you didn't know to ask. And you also get those little asides, uh, the sort of anecdotes. That, that give you the, the sort of flesh to put on the bones of the information that make it feel more authentic. Mm. Um, and so I, mm. I went off and I, I interviewed uh, a whole, whole bunch of, of forensic scientists for the book. Uh, and it's a, so it's a, it's a mix of interviews with current practitioners and also a history of the different specialisms and a history of, of um, the discipline. And for me, it's been, um, I suppose, the, the modern forensic science has developed in parallel with my career because, you know, the first use of DNA was in 1986 in a courtroom case. Um, and uh, I, I started publishing in 87. So uh, as my career has gone along, in parallel with that, there have been all these developments with forensic science. Lots of, lots of different avenues of forensic science have, have developed and have become uh, used in the courtroom. Uh, and, and the science, of course, has developed and changed and grown. I mean, in 1986, you needed uh, a stain the size of, of, of a, of a, a $2 coin 
to get any kind of DNA result from it. Now you can get DNA from something that's a millionth of a grain of salt, the size of a grain of salt. Um, you can get a DNA trace from. So the science has developed, and as it has developed, my relationships with forensic scientists have, have um, developed to the point where I actually have a mortuary named after me in Dundee. <laughs> <laughs> because um, I and, and my fellow crime writers uh, raised, raised half of the money for the mortuary. And the deal was the person who got the most votes in the sort of uh, fundraiser would, would get the mortuary named after them. <laughs> And uh, my, my friend Stuart McBride has the dissecting room named after him, <laughs> as he was the runner-up. And the other, the other crime writers who took part in this fundraiser um, all have uh, embalming tanks named after them. <laughs> so, um, with the exception, actually, of Lee Child, uh, because he thought it would not be appropriate to have the child embalming tank <laughs> on the premises. So, so, Lee's embalming tank is called the Jack Reacher embalming tank. <laughs> Of course. Um, but my relationship, I suppose, with, with forensics goes back uh, quite a long way. I mean, the, the, the first forensic scientist that I really uh, developed a working relationship with was Professor Dame Sue Black, who is yes. probably the leading forensic anthropologist in the UK. An extraordinary woman, uh, a great achievement. Uh, if you come across her memoir called All That Remains, which was published, I think, last year, um, it's, it's a remarkable, uh, I suppose, meditation on death from the, both the personal and the professional perspective, but it's a really, really fascinating read. Anyway, um, about 25 years, no, no, more than that, nearly 30 years ago, um, I was in a radio studio in Manchester, and Sue was in a radio studio in Aberdeen, and we were about to do a radio programme coming out of Glasgow. And it sometimes happens with these things. <laughs> the two guests are able to speak to each other off-air while the presenter is, getting, is doing this sort of wind-up to, to introduce us. And Sue foolishly said, if you ever have any queries about you know, anything forensic, just give me a ring. And I thought, yes, <laughs> you're mine now. <laughs> so within six months, I, I rang it up about something. Uh, and in the course of that conversation, we, we, you know, we, we talked about all sorts of things. And, and over the years, we've become really good friends as, as well as colleagues. And, and, and you always acknowledge her mm. and, and, and other people. Yeah, uh, well, these people know 104 undetectable ways to kill me. Why would I not acknowledge <laughs> them? <you know? laughs> but sometimes it, it's not always, it's not always um, how can I put this? Uh, sometimes it, it, it doesn't quite uh, uh, work as well as it ought to, but sometimes it, often um, in the course of these conversations, Sue or one of her colleagues will tell me mm -hmm. something that just makes me go, oh, wow, that's amazing. There's so many of these moments in, in, in the science stuff. And um, on one occasion recently, uh, a few years, a couple of years ago, Sue was telling me this thing. Uh, you, you probably know that over the course of time, all the cells in your body renew themselves. So the person you are now is, is not physically the person you were seven years ago. But there's one exception for this. There's a tiny bone in the ear, uh, so small that for years anatomists didn't even count it. They used to say there were 206 bones in the human body, but in fact there are 209 because there are these three tiny, tiny bones in the ear. Anyway, this particular bone doesn't change. It remains the same from the womb to the tomb. And if you analyze this bone, it will tell you where your mother was living when she was pregnant with you. Now, isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Still figuring out a way to use it in a plot, but, but I just dropped it in in passing into the next book. And uh, the book comes out, and I get this phone call from Sue who says, you might have waited till I'd published the paper. <laughs> but you shouldn't have told me, should you? You know, you know I'm a thief. I'd just like to mention um, Northanger Abbey, uh, 2014, because um, <clears throat> I love this book, and uh, Jane Austen fans will love this book. You are a Jane Austen fan. Yes, I am. Mm. Yes. How did that come about? Um, HarperCollins decided they were going to do a, a series called The Austen Project, where they would ask contemporary writers to rework the Jane Austen canon. Uh, and uh, they came to me and said, would you like to do Northanger Abbey? And I, thought, well, I looked over my shoulder to see who they were actually talking to. Um, I, said, I said, I'm a crime writer. Why, would I, why, why, why me? And um, the editor of the series said, well, because it's the only novel that isn't just a romance. It's actually, you know, it's got the suspense and the gothic elements um, and the sort of parody elements of, of um, 
the relationship between the, the text and the Gothic novel, and um, we think you'd do a good job. And uh, I, I went away and I thought about it, and I thought this might be a challenge too far, but um, the more I thought about it, the more I thought it could be fun to do. Uh, and so I, I, I agreed to do it. Um, and the, I had some technical problems. Um, obviously, the, the brief was I had to use the same characters and the same basic plot. But other than that, it was up to me. And the first problem, the problems that I had were technical. Um, the book is, is set mostly in Bath, where people go for the season. But nobody goes to Bath for the season anymore. I mean, people barely go to Bath for a weekend. <laughs> so first thing I had to do was figure out a place where I could set the action where people go for long enough for the basic mechanics of the plot to start uh, working. And the only thing I could think of was, was Edinburgh during the month of August, when all the festivals take place and the population of the city doubles, and it's full of people who are there to be seen as much as anything else. Um, and that gave me the scope to use uh, one, of the, one of the great board, to invent a, a border abbey. There's this sort of whole string of, of medieval uh, monasteries and abbeys in, in the Scottish borders. Uh, and one of the great advantages of using that is that uh, there are chunks of that area that, that don't have a mobile signal. And that overcame another one of the technical problems for me, which was communication. Because very often in Austin, um, the whole plot turns because somebody doesn't get a piece of information quickly enough. You know, a letter has been delayed or there's been some miscommunication. You know, whereas now you just go, oh, my brother has just texted me. Uh, so I had to find a way around that. So, so setting, it, setting it where I, there genuinely is no mobile signal, um, I thought was a way of, of, of doing it. And so with, armed with that, I... I I set off on my, on my journey into Northanger Abbey. Having got the technical stuff out of the way, the hard thing was finding the right voice. Because I knew I couldn't write this in the same sort of style that I write a crime novel. And I didn't want to write a parody of Jane Austen. No. I didn't want to try to write, no. I didn't want to try to sound like Jane Austen. So I had to find a voice where I could tell this story in a contemporary way that was different from what I normally write. And that was the, the bit that probably took me longest. But once I actually got started, it, it just flowed. It was, it was great fun. Um, and I hope people have great fun when they oh, read it. It's a delightful read. You must Thank read you. it. Mm. Yeah. It's, there's no murders. The... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not giving anything away no. when I say there's no murders in it. No. <laughs> and now we have this exciting news from Liam McElvaney at Otago University that he's going to have a visiting professor yes. who's going to teach his students about crime writing. Well, not, not, I don't think there's too much teaching involved, but uh, yeah, there will be a bit of interaction with students. Um, it's a, it's a three-year gig. I'll be, I'll be there for two and a half months every year for the next three years. And it's great, I've, I've, got my, I've got my own office with my name on the door. <laughs> so, yes. And how will that be? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm so far so good. I mean, I've, I've only been there a week. Um, and, and nobody's been horrible to me yet. No, I'm sure. <laughs> no, it's been lovely. I've been made, made very welcome. It's, I, I like Dunedin very much. Um, and I'm, I'm just delighted to be, to be back in New Zealand for a bit longer. To we are spend too. more time here, you know. You may even write a New Zealand novel. Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> Somebody did suggest a very bizarre notion of writing a novel with, with Janet Frame as the hero, detective. <laughs> I think, I think they probably hadn't read any Janet Frame. <laughs> but that's definitely not one that's going to work. Um, but I think, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I've, 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 never, um, I've never set a book really in, in its entirety in a place that I didn't know well. But, you know, after three years, who knows what will oh, happen with the name. Yes, I think you'll know. I mean, we think it's the little Edinburgh of the South. Yes. <laughs> so, you live in Scotland. And at the moment, we're hearing lots from London. We're not hearing quite so much from Scotland. Well, that's because the British media don't report what happens in Scotland, by and large. So what is happening for independence and Brexit and all this stuff? Well, we voted very strongly to remain within the mm. EU. Uh, one of the several lies that was told to us in the 2014 independence referendum was that the only way to be sure of remaining in the EU was to remain in the Union. That went well, didn't it? Um, and uh, so, essentially, there's a, there's a big push at the moment for a second independence referendum. The Scottish Parliament has voted 
to hold a second independence referendum. And technically, this requires the consent of Westminster. Um, and so really it is a question of when a deal can be struck with that bunch of bogus charlatans in Westminster uh, to allow us to have a second referendum. And I think that this time uh, we will win. Thank you. Um, Scotland has increasingly become um, the victim of a democratic deficit. Uh, we are not represented at Westminster. I mean, to the degree that, I mean, we are the third biggest party in, in the House of Commons. And yet, when the SNP leader in the House of Commons gets up to speak in Parliament, the BBC parliamentary channel goes somewhere else. They just walk, I mean, they just turn, turn off the cameras. They go, the cameras go somewhere else. They don't even report when he gets up to speak. It's disgraceful. It's absolutely Bastard. disgraceful. Um, so the time has come to, to put it right. It's been very interesting to see what has happened in, in recent years in, in Scotland. Now we have, a, we have a parliament that has areas of responsibility that are, are, are delegated to the Scottish Parliament. So there are things that the Scottish Parliament can do to mitigate the effects of the austerity that's come out of Westminster. And many of the, the, the steps that have been taken in Scotland mean that people in Scotland um, who are particularly the people in the, at the more precarious end of society are taken better care of than in England. And I was speaking recently to a, a geographer, statistician, um, who was telling me about, about infant mortality rates. Now, infant mortality rates are one of the key indicators for poverty. And in Scotland, our infant mortality rates are declining to a point where they are coming close to being the same as Scandinavia. And in England, infant mortality rates are rising to a point where they are approximating what is in America. So you can see a divergence here. And for me, the kind of social policy that produces a more equal society is the kind of social policy I want to support. I do not want to be part of the divisive policies that come out of Westminster, where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And the only way for us to avoid this in Scotland is, is to achieve independence. It must happen soon. I hope so. I hope so. Uh, there's a very strong move. Um, and, you know, every passing day that Boris Johnson behaves so <laughs> atrociously <laughs> is like a recruiting sergeant for independence. Yes. I mean, it's astonishing. It, it, I, I, I simply cannot credit the way these people are behaving. The rule of law no longer exists for them. You know, it's, it's, it's extraordinary. People like Jacob Rees-Mogg, who has moved all his money to Dublin because he doesn't want to be a victim of the way that you, the economy is going to crash after Brexit. Don't start me on here. Don't start me. You, know, you really don't want the three-hour rant. You know, Margaret Thatcher was the great villain of my, of my youth of the 1980s. And I'm not, I'm not for one moment saying that Margaret Thatcher looks any better in light of today. But the one thing that Margaret Thatcher always believed in was the rule of law that you did mm. things according to the Constitution, according to the law. This bunch don't give a toss about any of that. All they care about is themselves. There's no concern for the people of the country. No. So what about the judge's decision in yeah. Scotland? What, will that have any effect? Well, it depends what the Supreme Court says in the Supreme Court in London says. Right. Um, I think it's quite interesting that the, the Scottish judges have been quite unequivocal about the fact mm. that uh, Boris Johnson lied about his reasons for wanting to prorogue Parliament, and that makes it unlawful. So effectively what they're saying is he lied to the Queen, which puts her in a constitutionally very difficult position. It's yeah. just, I mean, it's, it's really impossible to see any way that we can come out of this in a good state. Well, Scotland might. Scotland might. Yeah. And it will, oh, we have, it will if you get yeah. independence. Yeah, and I mean, we actually do have um, a, a cadre of politicians in Scotland who are not all out for themselves uh, and who actually have some political principle. I mean, I think Nicola Sturgeon is a remarkable politician. Mm. Um, and, you know, I've, I've spent enough time in her company to know that uh, what you see is genuinely what you mm. get. This is, not, this is not a mask, you know. This is, I mean, she's a, a, a politician of principle. And there are many people in her party around her who are also people of principle. That's not to say that they're not isolated politicians in other parties who have principle and who are equally oh, appalled at what's yes. happening. 
But the people who have got the reins of power at the moment are an absolute shower. Well, so we, let's talk we, about books. we agree. <laughs> let's talk about books because it just... It just let's have questions. Questions uh, time. The mic will come round, so don't start your question until you've got the mic in your hand. So just put your hand up if you want the mic. If nobody puts their hand up, we'll just start picking on people at random, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody over here. Somebody down here. We can't quite hear you. Can you hold it closer? No, it's still not oh, right. We'll have what, this one down here, Rachel, just in the front row while you're fixing that. I, I support St. Martin, but how do you cope with supporting Wraith Rovers? <laughs> supporting Wraith Rovers? Um, Wraith, well, Wraith Rovers is, is in my blood. Um, Wraith Rovers is a, a not very successful first division football team in Scotland uh, and uh, I am condemned to support them because it's, 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 it's a tribal thing, it's my family thing. Um, my dad was a talent scout for Wraith Rovers and uh, he, di he discovered a football player called Jim Baxter who was uh, probably the greatest footballer Scotland has ever produced and he was the sort of George Best, the sort of David Beckham of his day and so it doesn't matter how successful I become. In Kirkcaldy, I will always be Jim McDermott's lassie. Because <laughs> that's a much more important thing. So I actually have, um, I sponsor one of the stands at the ground, um, but I also I sponsor the, the first team shirt. So every other Saturday, there's 11 sweaty guys running around a field with Val McDermott on their chest. <laughs> um, I wish I could say that it spurred them on to, to great things, but... Uh, <laughs> Right, over here. Cross you have to bear. <laughs> There's somebody back there as well. Have you got, is your mic yeah, working on it? Hope, hopefully this is going. Um, yeah. A couple, couple of years ago, I think a documentary was made where you actually spoke about Billy Connolly. Have you met the guy? And what is it in Scotland that just makes so many special people? <laughs> so you many know, what people? Special, special people. All right. Well, well, it's... You know, so many... Individuals, you know, I, I'm from Scotland, I'm not. My family are from Scotland, my wife is a Scot. But, you know, the, the people of Scotland are so special. Why is this, Val? Well, um... Well, look at her. <laughs> I, th I think um, there's, an art, there's, there's, there's something that's been quite interesting and it goes back at tangentially to what we're saying there about, uh, about Scottish politics. But um, there is an argument that, you know, the, 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 the Scottish Enlightenment back at the, the turn of the 18th century, uh, created many of the, the cultural, if you like, social, political, scientific elements of, that have led to modern life. You know, Adam Smith, with his economy, uh, has led to sort of the science of economy. Um, natural history came out of Scotland around that time. Geology came out of Scotland around that time. Many scientific inventions of, of the 19th century and, and beyond. Um, and one of the arguments says that because the best minds in Scotland were not involved in having to run the country, we were available for other things. Um, and for the general sort of um, uh, following of curiosity uh, and uh, I suppose establishment of um, different, different disciplines. Uh, and I suppose that's a tradition that's kind of continued that uh, um, I suppose we followed on from the, the, the words of Robert Burns, you know, a man's a man for all that, the sense that uh, you call no man your master uh, and that you have, uh, the only thing that stands between you and, and, and the achievement of what you want to achieve is yourself. So these are all the kind of tenets that we grow up with. Um, but I think there's, there's also been a very good education system in Scotland um, we had uh, education, so basically universal education, before England did. Um, we've always had uh, prided ourselves on, on um, an egalitarian uh, approach to education. So I think these are all elements of, of why we've produced uh, so many extraordinary people. And your early settlers here brought that to Dunedin, didn't they? Yeah, well, yes, we indeed, we, 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 we did come here and... Uh, 
help you start the country that you have now, uh, which might be a, a, a mixed blessing in some respects, I think. Another question. Can you tell us anything about how you work with your editor to produce such wonderful books? Um, I, I've always had, I've, I've been blessed with um, good relationships with my editors over the years. Um, and I think partly this is because my agent regards the business of finding a publisher as kind of marriage broker um, that, that, that is necessary uh, to find the right editor for each, each of her authors is what she, she tries to achieve. Um, and I've been lucky to have uh, authors that edit me in the way that I like to work. So the way it works in a practical sense is I, I produce my first draft, which is, uh, in some respects, isn't a first draft because I revise as I go along. So what my editor gets is something that's been revised and revised and revised as I've been writing my way through the book. Um, my editor goes away, reads it two or three times, comes back to me with, with some notes, which uh, are sometimes relating to a plot point or to a characters. And some of them are just like, line-by-line line edits of, you know, I don't like this, this adjective here, or that, that sort of small stuff. But um, when, then we have a conversation um, about the things that uh, are not working. And generally speaking, I would say that the overwhelming majority of the, the things that my editor thinks are not working are the things that I also know are not quite working. Um, you know, when that first draft gets handed in, it's the best I can do on the day, but I need to have the conversation to get me over the hump to fi figure out how to fix those things. And normally in the course of that conversation, uh, we figure out, I figure out what I need to do to uh, make right the things that are not quite working as they should be. Uh, I go away, I do a rewrite, uh, and then I go to a copy editor who does the detailed stuff, and that's it. It's quite, um, quite a truncated process because I've been doing this for quite a while now, and the first draft I handed is generally fairly clean. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it is, I mean, it's undoubtedly a, a, a process that's, that's necessary to make the book the best it can be. Um, and I, I say I've been lucky to have uh, editors who have worked with me with that in mind. Some, sometimes you, you run into problems with editors who are, whose, whose vision for the book is different from yours. That's not really been my experience. Um, but I know f friends who've, who've had that, that sort of experience, and that is a really difficult thing to, to get over, get past, uh, to make the book the book you want it to be. Um, and if, if a book ends up being not what you were passionate about, then you're not going to end up with a very good book, I think, generally speaking. Someone, oh, you've got someone here. Um, I was wondering if you remember what it was like for you at school, when at what point you sort of decided on you you wanted to write. People laughed at me, basically. Um, it was the, the, I mean, I, I grew up generally with the, the response of people like us don't do things like that. Um, I was once asked to sum up my, my life in sort of six words, and I said, they said I couldn't do it. Um, and so, yeah, I, um, I, I discovered that... Uh, Writing was a job that you got paid money for because I used to spend my life in the library reading everything I could get my hands on. And I used to read this series of books called The Chalet School Books, which is a girl's school story set in, in Austria and Switzerland. And one of the characters in those books grew up to become a writer. Uh, and I remember reading one, one of the books where she, she got a letter from her publisher and there was a check in this letter. And so I thought, oh my God, you get paid for this. I don't know how I'd thought books arrived in the library, you know, if it's just people writing them out of the goodness of their heart, but that was the point where I realised that, yeah, you could, you, you, could, you could be a writer, that could be your job. And I decided that's what I was going to be. Uh, and every time I said, people said, what are you going to be when you grow up? I'd say, I'm going to be a writer. And people would just laugh. Because, you know, working class kids from the mining villages of the east coast of, of Scotland did not become writers. Um, and I suppose every time people said, uh, no, you can't, I just was determined that, yes, I could. Um, and, you know, I, 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 that, was that. I, I, that was what I was going to do. Uh, and uh, I, still have, I still have friends from, from university who used to laugh at me when I said I was going to be a writer. 
And, um, you know, I, I, I tease them now, you know, sort of, who, who's got the last laugh now, you know? Val, you've absorbed an amazing lot of forensic psychiatry and psychology. Just wondering, would you think there's an element, a psychopathic element in all of us? <laughs> uh, I don't think I don't think so. Uh, I think I think most of us uh, are quite measured in the way that we go through our lives. But I would say that um, we've all felt murderous impulses at one time or another. But that doesn't make you a psychopath. Um, mostly, we don't act on our murderous impulses because. All sorts of things hold us back, mostly the fear of being caught. Um, but, I, but I bet everybody in this room at some time has felt murderous towards somebody, um, and not just the person you're married to. Um, but we, 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 don't, we, don't, um, we don't really, in our hearts, think that that's the answer to this, the problem. Um, for psychopaths, uh, it, it's uh, anything that stands between them and, and, and the, the fulfillment of what they desire. Is, is just something to be steamrolled over, and that's not how most of us operate our lives, thankfully. Otherwise, it would be a pretty grim existence, I think. You did say, <clears throat> I'm not sure whether you put it into Tony Hill's words uh, in your book, but it came from you, because you wrote it. I mean, I start to think, these are real people, Tony <laughs> Hill. And they're your friends, I must be your friends. Well, sometimes they're my friends, sometimes they're really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> well, he said, oh, I'm sure he, you put this into his words, and you said the secret of crime fiction was that you had to have imaginative ideas in your head, but you also had to have an, an understanding of human beings and humankind and some empathy, a lot of empathy. Mm -hmm. to, yeah. Is that the secret? Well, I think if you, I think if you have um, any empathy at all, that uh, prevents you from, from committing uh, acts of, of, of murder or, or sort of you know, sadistic mm. violence, mm. because you can't help but think from the other side of what that will be like. Um, I mean, Antonio, you know, I frequently described as a man who's undone by his own empathy. Um, and uh, one of the things I've done with, with uh, How the Dead Speak, which uh, was, was almost for my own amusement, but for the last few books, Tony has, has talked about this book he's supposed to be writing that he's got a publishing contract for, and he never quite gets around to writing it, but, but he's now in a position where, where he can write the book. So each of the chapters begins with uh, a, a supposed extract from Tony Hill's book. Reading Crimes by Dr. Tony Hill. That's probably uh, where I've read it. And so I, I kind of, I was, I was a little bit of a playfulness. Of, but, you know, publishing being publishing and, and publishers never wanting to, to let a chance go by them, one of my editors has said, um, maybe we should do The Little Book of Tony Hill. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I don't think so. I really don't think so. <laughs> Any more questions? Hello. Um, I wondered, when you write strong characters like Tony Hill and Carol, like how do you feel when you then see them in a televised program like Wire in the Blood? Like, do you start to think, oh, well, that's exactly how I saw them or not? Like, how do you connect with that when you see it in a televised TV show? Well, for me, um, I mean, I always knew when we did the deal for Wire in the Blood that it was going to be Robson Green playing. Uh, Tony Hill because it's Robson Green's production company that we did the deal with, um, having turned down other options in the past because I didn't like them or I didn't trust them. Um, but that, I was quite happy with that because Robson physically is very like the Tony Hill in my head. And actually the description of, of Tony Hill the first time in, in The Mermaid Singing could be a description of, of Robson. Um, so yeah, now when I write Tony, I, can, I see Robson in my head, but I don't see the other characters uh, as their television counterparts, you know, because I think Hermione Norris did a really great job as Carol Jordan, but she's not the Carol Jordan in my head. So I still see my Carol when I'm writing, and that's the, the image that I have in, in, in my head. Um, so yeah, it does, it does have a, a, an impact. But um, 
Sometimes you do get, uh, I think what you could loosely refer to as the law of unintended consequences. When I was writing uh, the, the, the novels around the time that the series was being made, um, I was bringing Tony and Carol back to Bradfield and I wanted to build a, a team around Carol. And uh, at that point there was a, a, a detective on the television series called, called Paula. And at that point, you couldn't really describe her as a character because she was just this blonde detective who ran about a bit and she'd, she'd had about three lines at that point. And I thought it would be quite fun to put her into the books as a character. Um, and so uh, I, I, rang, I rang the producer. Now, I have to, a slight digression here. When I write a book, the copyright remains mine. The characters remain my copyright and the book remains my copyright. But if you are a screenwriter and you write an episode for a recurring series, when you sell the script, you also sell all the rights and the characters that you've created for that episode. So the, they now belong to the television company, not to you anymore. So um, I said to the producer, can I use Paula in my next book? And she said, yeah, sure, of course, because anything that draws the books and the TV closer together has got to be a good thing. And so I, I duly wrote the book uh, and out it came and got nice reviews. And then I got this phone call from one of the scriptwriters, and he was furious. He was shouting at me, how dare I, who did I think I was, stealing his character, I'd, I, what a nerve, how, did, how, could, how could I live with myself just plagiarizing his work and stealing his character? And I was quite taken aback by this because I'd always got on very well with this particular writer. So I kind of let him rant at me for a while and when he ran out of steam, I, I said, oh, wait, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry that you're so upset, but I haven't done anything wrong. You know, I actually cleared this through the right channels and, and you know, it's, it's, I've not done anything wrong. I said, why are you so upset with me? He said, I, I'm upset because I'd named that character after my wife <laughs> and you've made her a lesbian. <laughs> I just said, I wish it was that easy. <laughs> One more question, last question, I'm afraid. Um, last year you judged the Booker Prize and obviously read a lot of books a lot of number of times. And I just wondered, when you were free from that, what did you turn to for a bit of enjoyment? Well, um, <laughs> I have to say, yeah, last year was, was, um, was quite a lot of hard work. Um, we worked our way through 171 novels for the Booker Prize. And as well as that, I, I, I always do the um, New Blood panel at the Harrogate Crime Writing Festival, which means I have to also read somewhere between 50 and 70 debut crime novels. Um, so last year was a pretty serious workload. Um, I won't pretend that I read every page of every one of those 171 Booker Prize submissions because it's quite easy, well, not quite easy, but it's, you can tell fairly soon with a book that's not going to win the Booker Prize. So you can actually focus on the ones that you think might have a chance to win the prize. But it's, it's a very demanding thing, and I would never do it again. Having done it once was enough. Um, but I'm actually glad that I did it because I read an awful lot of books that would not otherwise have kind of crossed my path. I, I, they, wouldn't have, they wouldn't have crossed my desk, certainly. Um, and I had some real uh, revelatory reads. And for me as a writer, I think what it did was, was kind of make me reappraise my own practice and ask myself if I was pushing myself hard enough, if I was challenging myself hard enough, or if I was just resting on my laurels. So I think it's um, ultimately quite a productive thing to have done. But as I say, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it again. It was kind of weird. Um, at one point, I was dreaming mashups of Booker novels, which was kind of, kind of weird. But I think at the end, we came up with a really, a really strong and exciting long list and short list. And I, think, and I think actually we were more exciting than this year. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Val. So tomorrow, more of crime, the crime weekend, at one o'clock in the Arts Centre, a free session when you can hear some of the New Zealand crime writers who are in the finals uh, tomorrow night. And uh, tomorrow night, there are still a few tickets left at 7.30, and Val will be performing in a different way. <laughs> um, Paul Cleave and uh, Vanda Simon will have two teams, and it's going to be a, a fun session. And at the end of that session, the winners of the three sections in the Nyamash Awards will be um, announced. And there are so many wonderful new writers in the finals this year. It's come a long way since Craig Sisterson got it going 10 years ago, and it's 
absolutely wonderful. Don't you think, Rachel, it's come of age? Mm. Mm, this is the year to go. So that will be in Turanga at 7.30. So, and tonight there's a fun night at 8 o'clock, isn't there? With, um, if you've got nothing else to do tonight, you can stay around and uh, go to that funny as night and you'll see some uh, movers and shakers of the comedy world in New Zealand. So, I don't want to stop, <laughs> but we have to. And I really want to thank Bill so much and for coming to New Zealand and to Dunedin. Mm. Um, it's just the right place for you and you're <laughs> to be here. And you might even, you know, buy a holiday cottage there sometime <laughs> and continue coming after three years. Thank you for being such a good audience and give Bill a very big acclaim. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. UBS have the books outside, a bookstore outside, with some of Bell's books, and some that aren't there, you can order from them. They're out of some of her books, no wonder. And then Bell will be signing in the foyer soon. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs>